Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Vizrael Ragar, CEO of Figures, a platform that's raised 8.5 million euros in funding. Vizrael, thanks for chatting with me today, and I'm very sorry for just butchering your name there. If you can go ahead and correct it for us, that'd be great. Yeah, it's actually Virgil Ragar, but it's a, it's a pretty tough name for English-speaking person to pronounce, so no blame there, really. And you were saying you have an English version of your name as well, right? It's Roger? Roger, yeah, indeed. So I lived two years and a half in Australia, right? And I kept repeating my name when I was on the phone because obviously it's a tough one to pronounce. I was like, so people were like, hey, mate, what's your name? I was like, Virgil Ranger. I was like, sorry, what? And I kept spelling my name all over and all over again. And one day, well, I had this guy on the phone. He's like, what's your name? I said, Virgil. He's like, Roger. And I was like, yep, Roger. And I went away with it. And so it was very early on in my time in Australia. And, and a lot of people knew me back then as Roger. So you can go with Roger. You can go with Virgil. You go with the one you want. <laughs> sounds good sounds good nice well super excited to chat with you and before we dive in and talk about all the epic work you're doing there figures we like to begin with just a couple of questions to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as an entrepreneur so first question is there a specific ceo and founder that you admire and look up to and if so who is it and what do you admire about them it's a pretty good one but i'm, I'm gonna disappoint you in the fact that i always feel left out of those questions that have to, there's not like a single ceo that, that i really really admire and I'm going to tell you, I've read all about him or all about her. I don't have that. I really don't have um, personal admiration for uh, someone in particular. So there's lots of stuff that I pick up for some of those funders, like quotes, essays, posts, and stuff like that, or learnings. But I don't have one someone specifically that I look up to. Are there any French companies that come to mind, French tech companies that you look at and say, wow, they seem to be doing a good job. They're getting it right when it comes to company building. Any French startups that come to mind? Uh, there's plenty of those, right? So I think Conto, as you might heard, like the banking fintech, raised 300 million or something earlier this year, I think is a model of efficiency, company building and so on, and someone may, people will look up to, right? Zenly, that you know, that acquired by Snapchat, and uh, then Zenly got shut down by Snapchat. I think some they're onto something else, and the way they built Zenly was truly impressive, and the, the tech, the design, some of the stuff behind it was, I think, best in class worldwide. So yeah, I think those two are good example of like really cool, French startup and scale-ups. Nice. And in the French tech ecosystem, what's going on? I uh, I was reading about some drama a few weeks ago. No, this was probably like three months ago. Wasn't there some big drama between some VCs and a startup? You know what I'm uh-huh. talking about? Oh, you've seen that one out. Yeah, that was fun drama going on. Like medium post after medium post. That was some of the best stuff. That was better than anything that's been released on, by Netflix on the last one or two years, right? So yeah, basically a founder accusing a VC of pushing them out illegally. The VC saying... They didn't do it. And it was always like one medium post. Then you have this LinkedIn and medium post by the VC. Uh, one week later, I'm like, oh, damn, then the VC seemed to be right. Then you have the counter, counter medium post by the founder one week later and so on. Ultimately, I don't know who's right or wrong, but that's sure uh, good, entertaining stuff. Yeah, I went for that stuff. Watching that unfold on LinkedIn, that was like, yeah, like you said, our version of Netflix, I think, for anyone. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. And another question for you, is there a specific book that's had a big impact on you as a 
as a founder and really as a person. So this can be, you know, one of the classic business books or just a book that influenced how you view and think about the world as a whole. Yeah, I think there's two of those that are linked, right? Thinking Fast and Slow, right? The Impact of Unconscious Bias by uh, Daniel Kahneman and so on. I think it's a pretty big book about the, unconscious, the importance of unconscious bias that's important as a founder, as a person, as an HR. And I saw it led me to read some, a book that not many people seem to know, Super Forecasters. I'm not sure if you've read this one. They follow along this weird group of people that play around, have a habit of forecasting events, right? And what's interesting about this book is that it led me to an habit of, I love forecasting and then looking back at my forecast and knowing what did I predict right, what did I predict wrong, and how can I learn from that? And I, I don't know, this book led me to this habit of noting down a lot of regular forecasts I make about the world, about my life, about business, about stuff like that. And then looking back at those later on and being like, why did I go right? Why did I go wrong? And I think it's really helped me improve less as a person, as a founder. But yeah, that, that'd be super forecasters. Can you share an example with us of a, a forecast you made and got right, and then a forecast you made and got wrong? So about like a specific company, yeah, I got the one that, uh, maybe I, I should remember more about the one that I got wrong, but one that I got right was like about, I'm going to talk about the space and the competition, but I'm going to be re-entering a new space, creating a new category, and I'm going to like, I think within the next six months, they're going to be a big round from a stealth startup that is going to be a new competitor from us. And that's going to be coming ahead. So we need to plan for that. And this is how we need to plan for that. And I wrote it down. And surely enough, like magically within two or three months after uh, writing that down, it, it did happen, right? And I think it, it helped me prepare for it because it's one of the forecasts I made that were right. What did I do that gone wrong? I don't know. I'm going to sound arrogant. I predicted that we'll end the year with 700 clients. We ended the year with 1,200 clients uh, back last year. So that made us a good. <laughs> but that's very pompous to say that I missed out on this forecast. Now, there's plenty of wrong ones that I could get back to, but none come to mind just right now. Yeah, no worries. We can circle back to that later. Maybe it'll come up in our conversation here as we try. All right. Well, let's talk about the company now. Take us back to the early days. You know, what's the origin story behind the company and what was really going on in your head that made you say, this is it. I'm going to pull the trigger on this one. Yeah. It's a pretty good question. So a bit of a background, I have a weird background in the sense that I have a computer science degree and I switched to a master's degree in human resources afterwards for very weird reasons, right? So it didn't make sense at the time, but I think it gives some insight to the rest of my career. I ended up doing HR. So I did 12 years in HR in large companies, then smaller and smaller companies, right, as a human resources professional. And then in my last two years as an HR professional, I was like a HR director for a series A startup, small-scale startup. And when I, I tried to design my compensation policy, I had this massive pain point of, I have no reliable market data to base my compensation policy upon, right, in France. And there was an ongoing pain point. And then at some point, I was like, okay, I'm going to switch to... I'm going to take one day off a week from my day-to-day -day job and my founder accepted. I'm going to try to do on a side project to work on the first compensation benchmark for startups in France, right? And um, this was 2020, October 2020. It took off immediately. I had 15 companies uh, willing to go along with it, sharing compensation market data with me. And I created the first version of figures was just a Google sheet. And I went out to company and said, you give me your own data, you pay, and I give you a one-year subscription to this Google sheet and I, I will update it monthly. Basically, and that was how Figure was born. It was just creating the first compensation benchmark for startup in France, October 2020, and I grew up to like 50 client companies just sending a spreadsheet. And then, wow, I we made that to like my co-founder, which is an amazing, amazing, the best developer I've ever seen. 
agreed to join me when he had like 10 offers to join other startups and so on. He agreed to join me, made a product out of it. And then this is two years ago, nearly to this day, the first version of our product. And this is all, yeah, this is where it all started. Wow. What were you charging for the spreadsheet? What was the cost uh, for access? <laughs> so I think it was, uh, so it was ridiculous, right? So one, one of the biggest mistakes I've made was, was I don't know if it was a, not a forecasting mistake, but in a way it was pricing mistake. So I started charging 400 euros per year for the smaller scale startups to 2,500 euros or something like that. And it was a ridiculous price. And one of the biggest uh, thing, when we turned out, when we made it out of a product, right, we even lowered the price. I was like, you know what? Because we're mostly a mix between a database business and a product, a SaaS product, right? But mm-hmm. for the data sets to become valuable, we need more company, right? So be the data co-op, give and get approach, right? Mm-hmm. And I would like to me to make the barrier of entry as low as possible. So we lower the price to be like, this is going to fuel more customers, which is one of the biggest issues then. Afterwards, I started reading some pricing strategies advices, right? And I realized it was a huge mistake. I devalued the value of our uh, product and I increased pricing by 3x June 2021. And it didn't impact at all our win rate uh, at the time, right? So big pricing mistake because I was charging way too little to begin with. Wow. So you 3 x it and did you have any trouble retaining those previous customers? <laughs> And you're on your sorry. It's pretty cool, right? Because I hired my first salesperson when we were still bootstrapped. And she's the one who had to deal with renewing clients, being like, I'm sorry, you're going to move from 400 euros to like 2,500 because not only our pricing changed, but your headcount grew. And that was a nightmare. That was a bloodbath. Those first, that was the first hundred or so customers. And those ones have been a nightmare to renew. But luckily enough, I didn't have to manage that. She did. <laughs> Nice. I love it. Delegating to the team, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what about today? So can you talk to us about how the products evolved and, and what the product looks like? And if I were a customer, you know, what's that experience look like? Yeah. So it's pretty simple, right? So we, the first thing is that we want to do real-time compensation benchmarking. So we're connecting to the HR systems of our customers, whether the Bamboo HR, Workday, HiBob, and the like, right? Together, data from them. We aggregate this data and the first part of the product is just basically data visualization for companies, right? How much does a senior product manager in Paris earn? How much does a, an intermediate or a junior data analyst in Berlin earn? How much should a CFO in a post-series B startup, in a SaaS startup earned in London? It's basically how much, like data visualization of compensation market data with filtering options that enable you to be super precise about what you're looking at, right? That's the first part of the product. The second part of the product as of today is analyzing our client data and basically doing a gap analysis with like the market data and telling them, you know what, maybe you know, maybe you don't, but your overall, your tech team is paid as the 60th percentile of the market, but your sales team seems to be paid between the first years and the fourth years. And like doing, running an analysis for them on how they compare to the market, running also gender pay gap analysis for them, seeing areas in the organization where they might have like unfairness and stuff like that. And yeah, that's like the big analysis part, saving them hours and hours in analysis that they would have done by themselves that I did by myself at the time, right? In a way, I created a product that I would have loved to have as an HR person in the past, right? So, but that's the two parts of the, of the product we have, data visualization for compensation market data and analyzing our client data to help them out with decision-making when it comes to composition. 
And how does compensation change from country to country if we're just going across Europe? Does it vary a lot? I'm guessing it has to vary a lot, right? In terms of like market rates? Yes. Overall or maturity of the market? Yeah, market rates, yeah, it does vary. UK is the number one type of country in terms of market rate. Then you have Germany being a bit ahead of France. Netherlands is in between Germany and France, closer to France. Then you go down to lower and lower countries in terms of cost of labor, like Spain, Italy, or Portugal, even though it's changing fast, right? Uh, like Portugal, for example, like Lisbon, have made it super easy for people to move there and companies to move there. So the tech, there's some pockets of like tech and customer support salaries in Lisbon and Portugal are exploding, a bit similar in Spain. Like the explosion of remote work is changing labor market dynamics quite fast. But yeah, overall, that's a good overview. Mm, got it. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned something there earlier in the interview that we have to dive deeper into, and that is category creation. So my favorite topic in the world. So let's talk about it. So are you guys creating a new category here? Yeah, we are. Like, well, it's, we're part of uh, a few companies. So, so the category is a, a bit more mature in the US, where it was created, I think, two, three, four years ago. But in Europe, there's only two players, and we created the category basically two two years ago, like we are one of the first comp tech, compensation tech, like a subdivision of HR tech, trying to provide tooling and data for um, for companies when it comes to compensation. We're definitely creating it in Europe, right? And we're market leaders in that uh, in that space. Do you call it compensation intelligence? That's the term that I've heard in the US, or is that something different? No, we, we haven't called it that, coined it that because and that's a good point of like, um, we're thinking of using that terms. It didn't resonate too well when we use it uh, in Europe, but it's definitely what it's being called in the US, right? As a trendy term, compensation intelligence, right? So comp tech, compensation intelligence, but we are definitely in that category. And who are the companies in the US that are doing this just to have those comparables? So probably the market leader now is PAVE. PAVE raised a hundred million round a bit more than a year ago, I think a year ago to this day, nearly a uh, hundred million uh, round to create this all-in-one compensation management category and there's other players, lots of emerging players. There's a lot, there's like a new player every month or two, it's a booming category. Uh, some of the other players in the space are like Pequity, OpenComp, Assemble, Complete, and some of the historical players purely on the benchmarking part, right? So data part are like salary.com or Payscale, for example. And for you as a founder here, how do you manage your own psychology as you see, you know, competitor after competitor after competitor, you know, continue to launch, raise a lot of funding? How do you just manage your state to make sure that you don't get, you know, a little bit overwhelmed with competition? Because it seems like there's a lot of competition in this space. So look, US competition is a great thing, right? And it's impacting us greatly because it's showing that the space is there to stay, right? And none of those are coming to Europe, right? And it's saying, one of them kind of try to get to Europe and it's a complex as often in, in a lot of categories, quite hard to get into Europe because Europe is like a very fragmented geographical area, selling into Spain, entering Spain is different than selling into France, entering to Germany, especially when it comes to compensation, because there's a lot of data privacy topics that comes into play, right? With GDPR and the like, and privacy is a super sensitive concern, especially in Germany and France to an extent. And so for a US player to come in and be like, hey, come on, get, give us your compensation employee, compensation information and so on, it's very, very tough. So, so far, it's a good thing is that US players, there are two things, like right? US players are showing there's a need for the space, which helps us, are helping in educating the space, which helps us. And also, to be very frank and very direct, also helping us 
in some of the new stuff we're working on in terms of new modules and so on. So like two modules we're working on, salary bands, helping companies create and share salary bands, right? And compensation reviews, like managing like company-wide compensation reviews. They're leading the way. And they're showing, to be very honest, there's some stuff that they, I think they're building some cool products, some cool product features that we can have a look at. Meanwhile, when we started Figures back then, two years ago, we went and created a product. There was no benchmark, no competition benchmark. Right, some of the stuff we built, some of the dashboard that I talked about previously that we built, like the gap analysis between the market, the market and you as a company, like uh, the company positioning dashboard, we created on a white, like on a whiteboard with my co-founder. A lot of the features were like, okay, how do we do go ahead and do this, right? And I think it led us to create some poorly designed features. It led us to create some features that maybe were not the one that client requested. And now when we are building this module in terms of salary bands, one thing that we are doing, and we are very upfront about this, we are looking at some of the three or four or five competitors in the US. Some of the, we are looking at their product videos and being like, that seems like a good idea. That seems like a good idea. And that's for me as a CEO, I feel a lot more reassured that uh, we can just, in a way, have a look at some competition, some benchmark to design some of our new features instead of starting from scratch entirely, right? Which is really more risky. So that helps us, it educates the market. It shows there's a way and facilitates a lot any fund current and future funding discussion and help us get some inspiration when it comes to product design. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's such a helpful way, I think, for founders in Europe or the US just to think about what's happening in other countries, to look at the startups that are doing something similar there and you know, look at it as a way to get inspired, to learn, you know, to all work together to educate the market. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, talk to me, or you know, we talked about the drama in the uh, the France tech ecosystem, but let's just talk about the ecosystem in general. So, mm-hmm. right now, for you as a French founder, do you feel that it's hard to have access to you know, larger amounts of capital, or do you feel that there's enough venture capital now to really service the needs of France? No, no, no that's has changed a lot in the past few years. In fact, most of the, the latest taste of European funding I've read is showing that. France funding into French companies has kept on growing year over year over year and maybe about to surpass uh, Germany when it was like two, three, four, five years ago. Germany and Berlin and Munich for SaaS used to be uh, much more advanced as an ecosystem. There's a lot of funding into France, whether it's coming from local players, as you know, like the BPI, the French government fund, is like the biggest investor in Europe, I think by a lot of like amount of capital deployed because the French government had put a lot of money into it, but also a lot of more foreign VCs coming into France because it's becoming a, I think, a great ecosystem in terms of talent because of multiple things, right? The usual dynamics of there's more and more second-time funders, more second-time funders tend to have easier access to funding, tend to have more ambition, and so on. So I think this this ecosystem is maturing a lot and access to capital is not hard at all in France at all now. Not, not at all. And if you had to you know, like summarize what a typical French tech entrepreneur's mindset is, is there like some standard, you know, like for me, when I look at Berlin, I see a lot of people who were part of Rocket Internet or inspired by Rocket Internet. And I think about those types of entrepreneurs as often mercenaries, you know, like they're there to make money and build a big business. And that's their mindset. They don't love the business necessarily or love the product. 
they are there to build a big, big company and that's their mission. Is there some type of standard you know, persona in France you think around like what a normal tech founder looks like or the average tech founder looks like in their philosophy for business? Yeah, I'll give you one that's, I think, of course, we're talking about cliches, right? And I think that doesn't apply to everything. But one thing that I've heard and I've seen personally from French founders is being tech obsessed and obsessed by the product, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to the maturity of the ecosystem thing I was discussing. This saying about like first time founders obsessed about the product, second time founders obsessed about distribution, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of French founders that are product obsessed. And I think there's lots of talent when it comes to tech and product. And I think it's a very, it comes back to culturally some of the French thing, right? France being seen as a bastion for art, culture, and literature, which is a noble thing. And in a way, I think building a great product or a product-led company is seen as very noble. Meanwhile, distribution and sales, historically, and even to this day, in a way, it's not very seen as a very noble way to build a company. Like building a sales-driven company, a distribution-first company is not being seen in a noble way, I think, in France, in a way. And when I compare that to the UK and how we are just putting, there's much more appreciation for companies that have been built on amazing sales processes. It's much, I think it's quite different in France. So I'd say that any cliche that seems to be true, and I think what I hear from VCs or, or repeat founders or other people on the market about French, like the issue with French founders is like they're too obsessed with product and less about distribution in a way. Mm, makes a lot of sense. I guess if you have to be obsessed with one thing, at least it's the product, right? Especially as we move into this product-led growth era, that's probably going to pay off in the long term. I hope so. I hope so because I think I fall into that category. I'm, I'm obsessed by product building. I'm, I'm, and this is what drives me the most, right? So <laughs> like egoistically, I also hope that this is a right obsession to have. But I think in a way, it's prevented some founders from achieving better outcomes by thinking more about building and designing a very having a very artistic vision of designing a great product without caring too much of how you're going to sell it first, right? Have you ever watched the documentary General Magic? Nope. Oh, you have to watch it. I'll send you a link after the interview, but it's the story of the company that invented the iPhone in like 1994. And it's like this beautiful story. It's presented as the most important company in Silicon Valley that you've never heard of. And they were, you know, this hot company raised a few hundred million dollars had this epic product, you know, they're on stage talking about the iPhone, you know, many, many years before the iPhone ever came out. And they were so obsessed with the product and, you know, these you know, little things that didn't really matter in the end that they missed their opportunity and they weren't able to successfully deliver on the product and it, you know, completely failed in the end. And it was just a, a fascinating story of, you know, what happens when you are too close to the product and not thinking enough about how to actually sell it. I'll send you a link though. It's a fascinating documentary. Love it. We'd love it. Now, let's talk about country expansion and, and what that looks like. So are you available now in all countries in Europe or how many countries are you available in? So we are available in, in fact, everywhere in the world. Like any company in the world that's interested into figures can access figures. But where our, most of our data lies is into like some of the core biggest European countries like France, Germany, UK, Spain, Netherlands, and so on. So we have the best data set for like go fast growing tech companies in Europe in those locations. And even if you're a US-based company that wants to hire, open an office or has an office in France and the UK and so on, you can go and get us. But yes, in terms of commercial activity, where most of our clients are located is now UK and France, neck to neck, then Germany, then Netherlands, then Spain. And I was watching a, a video of you getting off, a, I think it was a train wearing a billboard as you were, uh, what was it, expanding to Amsterdam? 
Yeah, but introduction. How important to you is humor in what you're doing? Because I watched that video and I, I laughed and I, I really liked it. And I, I think that's the type of stuff that's memorable, right? If you're too corporate and too boring, then people don't remember you. But you seem to take a, a funny approach to some of those messages and the marketing that you do. So how do you think about that? Do you view that as you know, humor is very important to brand builder? Indeed. So one of our values, like why so serious? And it comes from my co-founder and I, one thing that we have in common that we just... We're both driven by, well, building a great product, right? And the impact we can have. And it's also a lot about the journey rather than the destination. And one thing that we have in common is that we just like to have fun along the way, right? There's lots of fun stuff that we have built into the product as well and so on. And we like to have fun internally. That's something that's really in common for all of us. So when in terms of, yeah, putting culture, one of our values being around humor is an important part to us. And one thing that's interesting, right? Uh, two things that are interesting around that. One thing we're dealing with serious stuff. We're dealing with compensation, which is kind of serious. And we're dealing with important, sensitive information from clients. So one thing is, one struggle we had historically is how much fun can we have and we can we have externally while we're supposed to be super serious with our client data, right? And hoping that clients won't misread our humor as a sign of, yeah, not being too serious and responsible about what we're doing. So that was one of the struggles we had that at the beginning prevented us from being very open about our humor mm -hmm. and the second thing is just that you know we did a uh, i had this random idea that's like okay we're gonna do a corporate video for life at figures but instead of being boring we're just gonna do something quite fun and eccentric and we did that literally we called the cameraman and we did it in two hours the brainstorm and shooting included and we released that video and at the beginning we're like are we really gonna release it externally are we gonna look dumb and it, it really took off and then we realized that we're not the only one that like to have fun throughout the day. Like I, I, and we have fun on those videos, we have fun on LinkedIn because I'm tired and a lot of people are tired of living the same corporate, bland stuff that has no impact, no everlasting impact. So and when we realized that some of the fun we had, when we put it into a video, when we put it in LinkedIn posts, so we had this April Fool joke last year that we added the filter and we actually implemented it in our product to see compensation market data per uh, Zodiac sign, like, uh, you know, and yeah. you could see how much was the cancer earning. I were like doing this post that, and we actually took it live in the product. So our clients could filter market data and see that cancer product manager were making more than Lion or Leo product manager, which was completely stupid, right? And when we released that side of stuff, it resonated with a lot of people. And a lot of people are like us. It's just like tired of feeling, of yeah. tired of these two series on Brenton and they had fun. So the tradition that you saw was like, anytime we release a new country, I'm trying to release a funny video about it. So I distributed flyers in London and I went around with a billboard, a walking big board in Amsterdam. Yeah, we're having fun. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, most of the stuff that I see on LinkedIn, I would summarize with that. It's just you know, very boring. It's you know, not entertaining. It doesn't capture attention. And it seems to be changing. I think you know, companies like you and founders like you are making it more interesting. So I'm seeing that on LinkedIn, which makes me feel better. There's like, there's more memes now. I'm definitely seeing more like corporate memes, which I think are are, are pretty funny. So glad to yeah, see you. And you know, one thing about that, right? It's interesting that, of course, uh, I love the impact we're having with our product, with our mission, how we're helping out companies make fairer and more efficient decisions. But recently, a company released a, a very uh, sarcastic, like, funny video and they credited us by inspiring them for taking some risk and I was like that's I love I'm happy having that kind of impact on the market even if we fail as a company 
if we encourage companies to be a bit bold, more bold into some of the stuff they release in terms of like branding and so on, I'm, I'm happy with that impact. I love that. Now, let's talk about, you know, failure, which is obviously never a fun topic, but let's say if the company were to not be successful, why do you think that would be? You know, what would you not get right or, or what would be that, you know, big mistake or, or what would be the problem that you guys couldn't solve if the company were to not work? Okay, so it's, it's an interesting one because, of course, that's an exercise that uh, we go along and, and discuss from time to time. The first one, what we call the nuclear option, is like what we can't have happening is, of course, security, right? And data leak and stuff like that is the nature of the data we hold, right? The number one thing is that. Then in terms of number two, beside that, beside that kind of data leak, I think the floor in terms of failure is, is fairly low given what we build, the interest in what we build and so on. But what would be a type of failure, right? It will be... I think not being able to sell the product value of our product well enough, right? In a way, as building features that we struggle to sell because maybe the market is not ready, or maybe I think the market's ready is like just struggling to properly educate our customers the importance on some of the things we are building and then struggling to get traction because of that, right? Being there. Just, I think, product marketing education about our product, education about the ROI of uh, using a compensation management solution to make better decisions and so on could be one. But you know what? I think that's even that, that's a low floor, right? I think mm-hmm. it, will do, it, will, it will lead to not the, the great type of success and outcome, but I think we have, a, besides the nuclear option I discussed about, given the traction we have, given some of the data we have and the, some of the things we are building and the success, once again, that we see in the similar category in the US, mm-hmm. given we're market leaders and we're first mover advantage in Europe, I really have to mess this up personally to not make a success out of it, right? So I, it sounds very arrogant, but I struggle to see a very low floor in terms of catastrophic failure. Makes sense. And that's, I like that. So you've explored that then. You and your team have worked through that of, you know, what would failure look like? And you've reflected on that. And that is like the nuclear option for you. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing, first of all, the nuclear option, of course, drives us. Yeah. Like, you know, there was like a, a leak at Loom. Was it today? Loom, uh, Loom Lake or something like that. Today, yesterday, that was announced and this type of stuff. Every time I see it go live, I'm thinking of it could be us, right? So I, I'm a bit obsessed with that and we're working quite a lot on security. ISO 27001, SOC 2, and getting those certification, getting those processes up, which is frustrating, right? Because it's decreasing product velocity. Mm-hmm. But we're doing that because we very much have the nuclear option in mind because we think the, the worst outcome besides that nuclear option is a very... Yeah, I kept saying high low floor, it's more we have a kind of a high floor in terms of worst outcome, given the market creation, given where we're in, given the traction we had. The only way that we will mess everything up would be that type of um, outcome is like that. So I'm a bit obsessed by that. Negativity, maybe too obsessed as well, right? Maybe maybe there's a case where we should be less conscious of that and more risk-taking, especially early on uh, when you're building a company. I don't know, but um, yeah, it's something that does worry me. That's pretty much the only thing that does worry me. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like from my perspective, you can't really go wrong by obsessing over that problem, right? I feel like there's no way that two years from now you would say, oh man, I had to spend way too much time making sure that everything was secure. <laughs> so yeah, I think so. I hope so. Yeah, I have to wonder when these companies get breached, you know, like long-term, how they can even go forward. Like uh, LastPass, you know, like LastPass getting breached. It's like, how do they continue to build a business after that? Like, all trust is completely gone now. Like, obviously, I we're using them switched off. So I have to wonder, you know, once you get breached, what really happens? Uh, it makes sense, you know, especially given the data that you have and how sensitive that is, how important security is. 
Yeah, I think it's uh, easier you just shut down immediately because lots of uh, every customer want to retrieve the information. Lack of trust means you can get any customer and you instantly die. At best, maybe you can sell the technology to someone and retrieve some of it. But honestly, that's really the, a really, really the terrible outcome. Makes a lot of sense. Now, last couple of questions here. I know we're getting close to being up on time. So what personally motivates you? What excites you when you get out of bed every day? You know, what makes you want to just get out there and, and start working on this company and continue to build this company up? So I mentioned that I'm seeing I'm, I'm, I'm building a product I would have loved to use as a user. So I think that's a key driver. I'm, and, and like at the moment, I'm playing with our beta version of salary bands. And I'm like, I love it. Like, in fact, I'm probably spending too much time playing around with it and being hands-on as a CEO, trying out our new features. But I mean, that's what drives me. And I, I'm like, I love this feature. It would have saved me so much time. It would have helped me so damn much when I was an HR person. That drives me. I love those moments. And I remember even early on when you were only my co-founder and I, I love when he was like, hey, I've shipped something new into our test environment. Have a look. That excitement. Sometimes I was in between. I was in sales call and stuff like that. I was pretending to listen because I wanted to open the link and try out the new feature. That excitement of new features and imagining the impact you can have on our customers is probably one of the biggest things. And the second thing we touched on, right? It's, it's more and more, it's less about like the destination, what we're going to be, where we're going to land, and so on. It's much more getting to work and having fun with a good group of people, enjoying people, enjoying the work I'm doing. And this often comes through the product, right? And the second part is very much enjoying who I'm doing it with, having some fun along the way. It's, yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty damn happy, but. You seem happy. I like it. <laughs> All right. Last question here. Let's zoom out three years, five years from today. What's that big vision? What do you want this to really look like? I like to think of our category in a way like that once again, it's going to become obvious. I want it to become obvious five years from now. People are going to be like, how come as an HR professional, I, I managed to run compensation without a tool like figures. I want it to be so obvious that people will look back and wonder why and wonder how could company work out compensation using only spreadsheets like billion spreadsheets like I did during 12 years, right? I want it to be, I want people to be using figures and be like, really people are using spreadsheets instead of this? How come? Like, you know, thinking about this, like the, I think we're the stone age or dark age of compensation and that five years from now, people are going to look back and it's going to be a brand new, yeah, it's going to be a completely different term, type of norm when it comes to compensation and how you manage it, right? Amazing. I love it. All right. Well, we are up on time here, so I'd love to keep you on and ask another 20 or 30 questions, but we do have to wrap, unfortunately. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? Probably LinkedIn. Uh, I haven't turned into a one-man show on YouTube or whatever like that, so LinkedIn is probably the best way to go. So you can post the informative post about compensation and compensation trends and the silly videos or silly posts that goes along with it. So if you enjoy post-compensation insights, and the uh, city jokes. Yeah, just follow along on LinkedIn, I guess. Amazing. Well, my friend Roger, thank you so much for uh, her chatting. <laughs> I appreciate it. This has been a blast. I really enjoyed getting to know you, learning your story, and just really learning about everything that you're building. This is such an awesome company, and I wish you best of luck in executing on this vision. Thanks a lot for that, bud. Thanks for right. bud. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 